This is Peter Holmstrom, and if you're a fan of Star Trek, check out my new book, The Center Seat, 55 Years of Trek, the official companion book to the hit documentary series by the Nacelle Company, which chronicles the history of Star Trek from the early days of Lucille Ball and Desilu all the way to through the end of Enterprise, featuring new and expanded interviews from Trek legends such as David Gerald, Rick Berman, Ronald D. Moore, Harold Livingston, Walter Koenig, Kate Mulgrew, Nana Visitor, Robert Picardo, Tim Russ, Brandon Braga, Lisa Klink, and of course, in Glorious Trexpert's own, Mark A. Altman, as well as the final interviews from Kirstie Alley and Leonard Nimoy, in addition to so, so many more. Pick up The Center Seat, 55 Years of Trek, available today in hardcover and digital, wherever books are sold. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation, an enterprise from the past rips through time and alters the future. I'm supposed to be dead. Now, Lieutenant Yar lives again to help the crew fight a devastating battle. This war is not supposed to be happening. You've got to send those people back to correct this. And one courageous team must die to save the Federation from destruction on Star Trek The Next Generation. Welcome to the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with the creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise. I'm your host, Peter Holmstrom, a screenwriter and author with a new short story out in the current issue of Star Trek Explorer magazine. And I'm Lisa Klink. I wrote for Star Trek Deep Space Nine and spent three years on Voyager. Television really takes a village. Uh, a script of Star Trek often will have many writers, not just the entire writing staff, but also some oftentimes freelance submissions uh, to make the episode come to life. It's rarely ever just somebody putting out a first draft and it getting it filmed. It takes a long process with a lot of creativity being thrown around on every angle of the production. On today's show, we're talking about uh, one of the if not the greatest episode of Star Trek of all time. And it's interesting origins as a, uh, a pitch from one of the uh, people who was not on the writing staff at the time. Uh, on today's show, we have uh, Mr. Eric Stillwall with us, who is one of the creative voices behind one of the greatest episodes of Star Trek, in my opinion, yesterday's Enterprise. Eric, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. So how did you first get hooked up with Star Trek? Well, I, I was I became a Star Trek fan when I was age nine. A friend of mine from school invited me over after school one day to watch his favorite TV show. And it was already in syndication because it was the early 70s. And that's how I, I saw one episode and I was hooked. Yeah. And... Um, I was I became involved in Star Trek fandom and by the late 1970s I was very much involved with Starfleet the international fan club which I became the president of in the early 80s and that was quite an experience trying to run an international Star Trek fan club and <laughs> college at the same time yeah. um and then eventually uh 
I decided I I wanted to move to Hollywood and be involved in the in the entertainment in, industry and um so to get some experience I started well I'm probably going on too much about my whole experience but that's how I initially got started was as a as a fan okay we, we, we are here for the uh ramblings this is yeah. <laughs> this is why we okay. do it <laughs> well, so, in order to get some experience so that I could try to go to Hollywood and work in the business I, I actually became intrigued about working in Hollywood when I was 15 and I went to see Star Wars when it first came out and although I was already a huge Star Trek fan Star Wars just blew me away from the beginning of the movie when the Imperial battle cruisers Princess Diana's ship across the the planet over the planet and I just was like I I have to go to Hollywood now (laughs) (laughs) and Star Wars inspired my move to Hollywood but to get some experience I, I did move down to Los Angeles right after I graduated from the University of Oregon with my political science degree um but I I had no luck really in in the business, and um, it was very expensive living in Los Angeles and trying to figure out how to get my foot in the door. So I ended up coming back to Oregon to live with my parents and work at a video store. And a chance article came up in the paper about um, Warner Brothers coming to Oregon to do a Hallmark Hall of Fame TV movie with James Garner and James Woods called um, Promise. So I started contacting the production office down in Los Angeles and uh, they kept saying, oh, call us back, call us back and call us when we get to Oregon. So I just kept calling them and I think they finally just gave in from my (laughs) dear persistence and they told me I could volunteer as an an office. How kind. So So in the beginning, I was just like making photocopies and answering phones and stuff. And then the production manager um, decided I wasn't allowed to work on the show as a volunteer because it it would cause insurance issues. So they hired me to basically uh, be an extra for a couple days in some scenes with James Garner in a bar. Okay. So, and it was in a town where I went to kindergarten, Dallas, Oregon. So that was interesting. And then um, a couple of days later, one of the assistant directors got fired because they had a confrontation with James Woods. And they, (laughs) oh, really? They desperately needed like another assistant to help the ADs. So they hired me as a production assistant, but they, gave me all the accoutrements of a of an ad i had a walkie you know i didn't have the most glamorous assignments but i i did get to help the ad's and and then suddenly when the the producers realized that this newfangled technology of videotape was going to be the way they saw dailies (laughs) the studio would they would ship the film to LA and then uh, the studio would ship up the dailies on VHS tapes and nobody had a VHS machine in those days. This was like early mid eighties. Um, but I worked at a video store that happened to have machines. So I got to hook up the video machines for the executive producers, including James Garner. And I got 
to just be really involved in almost every aspect of that particular production that was being filmed on location. Wow. I even worked with the uh, location manager for a while, helping do maps to various locations. And so I, I had enough experience. I thought I can make a resume, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, literally the day that the, uh, tv movie wrapped and i was driving home to eugene oregon i heard on the car radio that paramount studios was announcing the next generation uh-huh. and i'm like oh this is crazy so <laughs> i sent my resume down to susan sackett because she and i knew each other because of the time that i was running the star trek fan club and she passed it on to eddie milkis who was one of the producers in the first season. Um, and then it ended up on Bob Jessman's desk. And I was in LA uh, a, f- a couple months or weeks later to, to take a test for the um, assistant director's training program. Hmm. And while I was there, I got a call from Bob Jessman to come in for an interview to be a production assistant on next generation wow and and he was the nicest guy and but it was funny because it wasn't really so much an interview as him talking about like what what the job is and his background and all of this he hardly asked me any questions (laughs) and then i didn't get the job but i got the the (laughs) nicest letter from him basically explaining that they had decided to hire two production assistants. Um, one of them was David Takamura, who ended up in the post-production department um, because they already worked at the studio and either the mail room or they were tour guides or whatever. But he said that I was like one of the top candidates and that he really liked me. So so I thought, well, I'm going to go back to Hollywood and I'm going to get a job at the studio somehow. And I ended up um, getting a job as a tour guide. And the tour guides also were um, pages for the live shows that were uh, recorded like Family Ties and Cheers and all the shows with live audiences. So I worked on a bunch of those different shows and I gave tours. And then one day, my boss said, um, we just got a call from the producers of Star Trek The Next Generation, and they're doing a cast and crew screening on the lot in one of the, the Gower Theater, and they need a page to come and <laughs> door duty and check off all the names on the guest list. And after everybody's in, you can stay and watch the the pilot episode and I he's like are you interested and I'm like are you kidding me <laughs> so I did that and during the evening Bob Justman um saw me and he's like Eric what are you what are you doing here and I said oh I'm working on the lot now he goes well I I haven't seen you around and I said well you know the Star Trek sets are closed and I'm I'm not gonna like sneak on the sets or do any crazy like that. Um, and he's like, "Well, it's good to see you." Well, literally, like a couple days later, after I finished my shift as a tour guide, I get a message that Bob Justman called and wanted to know 
if I would call him back. So I called him back and he said, are you still interested in being a productionist on Next Generation? There you go. And I said, I absolutely would be interested. He said, well, David Takamura, who was there, the first PA, had been promoted to work with the post-production team. And uh, they needed someone to fill in. And he's he's like, uh, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I have two other jobs that I have to quit. <laughs> I had this sort of Midwestern mentality of that you need to give two weeks notice when you quit a job. And so I'm talking to Bob about this. And he says, he yells out to Carol Eisner, who was his assistant. He's like, Carol, bring in the the pile of resumes for the oh. production. And it was literally <laughs> like two feet thick of like resumes. He's like, if you're not interested, there's always other people who I might find I'll be here. I'll start tomorrow. Yeah. And wow. literally, <laughs> literally the, the, that night uh, or the next day, actually, I was given permission to finish my um, duties as a page the following day after I was done starting my first day as a production assistant. And my boss, who I worked for um, outside of the studio, was coming to a screening of Cheers that I had helped her get tickets for. Yeah. And and I had basically called in sick to work that day. (laughs) She wanted to know what was going on. Well, I really hate to break it to you, but I I got hired on Star Trek and I I had to quit overnight. (laughs) But she was very nice. Yeah, I I, I, I had to do that myself one time where, you know, you have to quit with 24 hours notice because you got a better job coming in. I still regret it for whatever oh. reason. Because <laughs> we, we I think all of us are just instilled with that weird, like, yeah, you got to give two weeks notice or something yep. horrible is going to happen to you. So, <laughs> it's like the tax well, the man funny, is going to show up and then you're going to well, get arrested or something. The funny thing about her was she's like, well, it's Hollywood. You got to take it when you when it comes. So, so true. So I well, that was good. So that's how I became a production assistant. That's great. So was this on, this was on, was this still season one? Because you, yep. you mentioned Bob Justman being 13. there. Okay, so yeah. Episode 13. Wow. Um, October 13th. <laughs> I remember. And literally two days later, the other production assistant quit. Uh-huh. Um, and David Livingston asked me if I knew anyone who might be interested. And I had a friend that I had gone to high school with from Oregon who was in LA and she was uh, working at some boring job in Marina del Rey for for some lawyers or something and I called her up and I said hey Heidi it was Heidi Julian who became Heidi Smothers Um, you might remember she was a production coordinator on Deep Space Nine Mm. and I said uh I said, do you want to come in and interview for a production assistant job on Next Generation? <laughs> and I, I remember her saying, right now, I'm not, I'm not dressed for an interview. <laughs> and, I, and I hear David Livingston yell out of his office, I'm not going on a date with her. I just want to talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> so she came in and they hired her. And <laughs> two, two kids from Eugene, Oregon, were the new PAs on Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. That's great. I uh, I grew up in Oregon myself, and constantly passing through Eugene to drive on my drives back down to LA. It's a it's a very nice little city. Are you from Portland? 
Uh, actually from a small town outside of Portland uh, called Cascade Locks, um, which is okay. uh, somehow became on the map because it's like the where like there's some book or something that has a final scene in Cascade Locks. So it's but when I was growing up, nobody knew about it. And that's how I always see it. It's a place nobody's ever heard of. Um, but yeah, so then you start out as you have this job as a production assistant. Um, but also, you know, your goals in Hollywood are to, to be a, a writer. So like, what are you doing? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I love hearing this story because it's just like um, the, the over the umbrella term for all this would just be tenacity. Right. Yeah. It's like so many people in Hollywood just come in being like, well, I'm here. Somebody offer me a Star Wars well, movie or something. <laughs> and, and it's I, like, that's not how these things work. Well, to to go back a little bit, when I was a fan in Eugene, Oregon, um, someone knew that I was a big fan, and she said, "I know someone you should meet." And and it was um, this woman was a hairdresser, and I used to go in and get my hair cut. So she arranged an appointment with this other client who used to come in all the time, <laughs> and her and her husband. Um, were the owners of a big car dealership in Eugene, but they were friends with DeForest and Caroline. Oh, wow. DeForest oh, wow. and Caroline. And, and the, this woman was so nice to me. She, she contacted DeForest and he wrote to me and sent me Aww. a really lovely letter. And I met him at a, a Star Trek convention in Houston um, back in the eighties. And I asked him, what his advice was for getting into Hollywood. And he told me his advice was persistence, persistence, persistence. Mm -hmm. So I followed his advice and it worked out. That's great. That's so wonderful. So, you know, you stay with the show or get into season two. I mean, at what point did you start, um, you know, coming up with your own stories uh, and having the ability to actually uh, uh, pitch them? Well, I think after the first season, there was a, a writer strike. Yeah, if I remember correctly. So they had laid us off for an extended period, and I had gone back to Oregon to stay with my parents. Um, and I wrote a spec script while I was there. And when I came back, I I showed it around to, to Maurice Hurley and a few people, and it got passed around to. Uh, the production manager and someone shared it with Tim Isafano, who was one of the studio executives. And I got really good feedback from everybody on my story. It was called shattered time. And, uh, it, they, Maurice Hurley was literally going to buy it. And but then Gene Roddenberry nixed it. Oh no. And I, and I was crushed. I was, Oh yeah heartbroken because Jane was always an idol of mine when I was a kid and I just couldn't believe I got that close and then Jane crushed it but um, I continued um, working as a production assistant for a couple seasons and then um, at the end of the second season there was an opening for the script coordinator position in the Hart building and um, Heidi and I had divvied up our duties as production assistants where she was more interested in the costume department and makeup and stuff. And I was more interested in the writing department. So when we had to distribute documents or things, I would always do all the the writing department stuff and she would do a lot of the, the other departments. And um, so 
that's how I sort of became very intimate with the whole process of the the script revisions and running pages down to the print shop back in the days when they still made paper copies of scripts. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I knew the whole process that was involved. And uh, when the opening came along, Rick Berman's assistant recommended me for the position. So they hired me as the script coordinator. And that's how I moved up to that level. And then that was the year that we were transitioning from Maurice Hurley to a new showrunner. And they had interviewed several people and narrowed it down to two people. And they, the person they hired was, um, I think his name was Michael Wagner. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. And he just, uh, he came in and we were so far behind with scripts and, it was just chaos and he just couldn't handle it. So he didn't last very long. So it ended up that I sort of had to bridge the link to Rick Berman's office during this time where as we the scripts were sort of trickling in, I, I would work <laughs> with Berman and get his notes and make sure the changes were made. And then they um, brought in Michael Piller, who was the runner up uh, in this contest, I guess. <laughs> And so then I started working for Michael Piller and he decided because we were so far behind with material that he, he got permission from the studio to open up the submission policy to anyone who wanted to write for Star Trek, which was unheard of. That's unheard yeah. of even today. Yeah, it the is. The studios don't allow it because of all the legal issues and so we had to develop a whole program and i worked with michael to create the the guidelines for the scripts and we had to have very specific formatting requirements because people didn't know how to format a script or anything sure and and everybody wanted to write a sequel to some original series thing which they didn't want to do at the time and um or they all wanted to do a q story or something you know <laughs> and so we had to be very specific and we started getting hundreds and then thousands of script submissions, which I was responsible for logging and tracking and wow. distributing them to the writing staff who were all reading scripts in their quote unquote spare time. <laughs> so that was back in the days when Melinda Snodgrass and Richard Manning and Hans Beimler and Ira Bear were on the next generation staff. And, um, there was just so many scripts but one of the scripts that got submitted was from a freelance writer named Trent Christopher Ganino and his first his script his spec script was the basis of yesterday's enterprise because it was called yesterday's enterprise but the story that was told in his script didn't involve any time travel or or alternate universes it was just a dilemma of a crew from the past coming through a portal into well it, there was time travel but it didn't create an alternate universe they just show mm -hmm. up and picard's thinking we have to send these people back or they could end up changing history so that was sort of the dilemma but then there was the moral dilemma 
of knowing that they might go back to their deaths and but that was sort of the extent of the plot and uh trent and i um his script was had gone around the offices for months on end from one to the next and um you know, Melinda would recommend it and then someone else would look at it and then someone else. Yeah, so it took like months. And Trent was always there bugging me, like, what's going on? So we sort of became friends and we he ended up as a tour guide at the studio as well, which is why he was always on the lot and always bugging me. Um, but one night we we uh, had tickets to go see the employee screening of Star Trek V in, in the, one of the theaters on the lot and we went to the screening and afterwards we had to sort of you know spend half the night like breaking it down right sure. <laughs> so we ended up at some 24-hour diner on sunset boulevard and going on all like and, and finally our conclusion was we can write a better star trek story than that <laughs> but if it's a lot of writers <laughs> so whatever guys that movie is great <laughs> uh yeah so <laughs> so i told trent that i had been working on a story of my own which basically broke all the rules but it was a story where the enterprise was escorting Sarek, Ambassador Sarek, to the planet of the Guardian of Forever because a Vulcan archaeological team had been on a mission to explore ancient Vulcan. And Sarek was going to the planet to greet the archaeological team. And of course, an accident happens in the past. And and for some reason, somehow Sarek, not Sarek, Sarek, who was the founder of Vulcan philosophy gets killed before his time. And the, and the Vulcans never evolved into this peaceful, logical culture. And they end up basically joining with the Romulans to, to become this massive empire that back in, in the 24th century has now um, basically almost destroyed the Federation. So when the time change occurs, only Sarek, who was down on the planet, is unaffected by the time change. But everybody up on the Enterprise um, now thinks that Sarek is either a Romulan spy or they just don't trust him. And he's trying to convince them that this something happened and and it's not supposed to be this way. He was kind of the Guinan of my version of the story. And, um, and so... Finally, Picard lets Sarek do a mind meld where Picard becomes convinced that he's not lying to him and he's not really a Romulan spy. And the solution they come up with is Sarek goes back in time to to Vulcan and replaces Sarek. And this all came from an idea that I had when I was a kid as a fan. I used to say, Zurek and Sarek sound so much alike. (laughs) What if if they're the same person? (laughs) So that's where this idea came from. And uh, so Trent and I were working on some stories and I I was working on that. And and then one day um, we went to a convention up in San Jose, which was Trent's hometown. 
and Denise Crosby was the guest. And in the autograph lane, we were talking to her and she said, Eric, you should write an episode to bring me back. <laughs> I kind of laughed and and I said, are you serious? And she's like, yeah, I'd really love to, to come back on the show. And so I thought we were thinking about it. How could we do this? You know, what kind of story could, can you tell about a dead person? Right? <laughs> and, and then one day I overheard or saw something, a memo that went out where Michael said that they had been contacted by Denise Crosby's agent and she was interested in coming back to the show. And um, they wondered if anyone had any ideas on how they could do that. So I literally ran across the hall because my <laughs> office was literally across the hall from where Michael Pillar's office was. And I, I went in and, and he's looking at me and he's like, can I, can I help you? And I said, Michael, can I talk to you for a minute? He's like, sure, have a seat. So I start pitching this this whole idea of basically my Sarek story. And and uh, he had finally seen Trent's script because it had come up to his desk finally. And uh, I told him that Trent and I were working together on developing this idea. Um, and he of course michael's thing was we don't want to do any gimmicks from the original star trek gimmick gimmick michael they call them easter eggs now <laughs> back then they were gimmicks but now they're easter eggs so, so michael um said so, so if, if trent and i would combine our two story ideas together so that there would be an alternate universe where tasha would still be alive then he would he he would pitch it to Rick and see what Rick said. And Rick, of course, had never been a fan of time travel stories up to that point. Um, but he agreed. And Michael basically hired us to go write the story, which was combining Trent's original idea and my ideas together. And that's how yesterday's enterprise was came to fruition. Well, that's a lot of pieces that had to fit together in just the right way. Well, and the most difficult part of it was in in my original story, because of the Guardian of Forever history, we know that the people who were on the planet weren't affected by the time alteration. But we didn't have a person who would be aware of the time change in our new version of the story. Um, so Michael Pillar actually came up with the notion that Guinan had sort of an extrasensory perception of time and and that that would be the way forward with the storyline. And then because we were in such a time crunch, originally um, they were going to film in January of 1990. And this was November 89 when, when we were working on the story. And then suddenly they realized they could only get Denise Crosby and Whoopi Goldberg for the same shooting period in early December. Oh, so <laughs> so they took the story away from us and gave it to Ron Moore to polish. And he did a nice job with that. And then the, the entire writing staff, which was Ira, Hans, and Richard, and, and um, uh, who else? It wasn't, it, she wasn't involved, but it was 
Richard Manning and Hans Beimler as a team, uh, Ira Rivera and Ron Moore, and also Michael Piller, who wasn't allowed to have a credit on the episode because the, the writers guild said there were too many writers involved. Yeah. <laughs> but they had to literally go home over Thanksgiving weekend and each each writer had to do an act and come in after Thanksgiving and piece it all together uh, and put it into a script so they could shoot it like the first week of December and they were all convinced it was just going to be horrible because it was a hodgepodge of different people writing different pieces but they they really stayed true to the to the story outline and and we can we now know in retrospect that it all turned out well. Yeah. Well, let's uh, talk more about the uh, the process and, and the episode. Uh, well, the episode's playing here, so let's uh, get this going. Uh, listeners out there, we're watching Season 3, Episode 15 of Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, Yesterday's Enterprise. Uh, we're going to hit play here in 3, 2, 1, Engage. Now, because you were working there as a script coordinator, did you get to see all of everybody's drafts and how it got combined? And did you kind of have the inside look? Well, when when it was um, when it was being put together as a script, I see I would see all the pages because it was my job to oversee the proofreading and the typing and printing and distribution of the scripts. Mm-hmm. But I was never privy to the writers' room. Mm. conversations because i wasn't ever invited to writers right right um so the discussions that happened behind closed doors i wasn't aware of but when when the pages started coming through i did see all the development and and the story drafts that ron moore did because mm-hmm. trent and i did two drafts and then ron did a third draft and then they broke it down and started writing the script Sorry, I just wanted to say it must have been really difficult to to keep your opinions to yourself at that point. <laughs> well, it was uh, to, to an extent, but I, I actually they let me submit notes and oh really, which I rarely ever did. I mean, every now and then I would give notes um, if I thought something contradicted, like the because one of my jobs was to. Uh, make sure that there was continuity mm-hmm. in the stories and stuff and in the early on there was a lot of um, things that writers would write that that contradicted stuff from the original series mm-hmm. so i would always be the one who would either tell michael or jerry or whoever i'm like you know in the original series <laughs> this happened and i mean i one of the things that drove me crazy was how many times they would um, say We've never seen anything like it before. <laughs> I'm like, oh well, except for actually this, this time and this time. So I was always the person doing that, and then uh, Mike Akuda would also send in te- sort of like technical notes and and continuity things also. So they sort of were used to getting those kinds of notes because um, in a, in later seasons, like when Jerry um, Taylor was writing the, one of the Sarek episodes and she had to um, have Picard and Sarek talking about Spock's childhood and stuff Mm. I brought to her attention the animated episode yesteryear which she had never seen yeah 
you you should watch this episode <laughs> to get some backstory on. So she incorporated a bunch of stuff from yesteryear that she, that she would, wasn't aware of until oh, that's I great. mentioned. So, so I would always try to bring continuity issues, and then I got to do a little more than that with yesterday's Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, they would. I mean, when when Morris Hurley was the showrunner during the writers' strike, they were doing the Neutral Zone episode with the. Mm. the two two Romulans and I remember him I was a production assistant still and I remember him coming into the production office and he put his hands on my shoulders and he's like Eric I need the names of two Romulans and I just looked at him like what you want me to make up two names (laughs) and he's like no look it up in a Romulan encyclopedia (laughs) so I I had little bits and pieces of contributions even in the in the first season yeah no because they knew i was a fan they would just come to me with sort of insider you know trekkie questions did you ever get to go to the set oh yeah i went to the set um quite frequently i mean when i was a pa i used to deliver scripts down to the set mm-hmm. for, for the cast and the crew and so I was down there a lot. And then when I started working in the Hart Building, I I didn't get to go as frequently. But whenever there was a slow day, mm-hmm. <laughs> very often, but I I would go down once in a while. Mm-hmm. In fact, during the filming of yesterday's Enterprise, um, Trent and I would go down as as frequently as possible just yeah. to to watch it and i all i ever wanted to do was just blend into the background and (laughs) yeah and watch what was going on but people were always getting me in trouble somehow someone uh i we were in a on the 10 forward set and Whoopi goldberg was asking if she could change a line and Mm -hmm. someone said oh well these guys wrote the story oh "Oh, no 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 (laughs) I cannot approve any changes you need to talk to Rick Berman's office because it always had to go through Rick Berman, right? Yeah. So I thought, well, just to be, you know, a good meaning person, I will let David Livingston know that Whoopi Goldberg needs wants to talk to Rick Berman about a line change. And and of course all I got out of that was Rick Berman yelling at David Livingston, why is Eric Stillwell on the set talking to Luffy Goldberg? Oh no. <laughs> and somehow I got banned from the set. Oh. <laughs> Rick, Rick, Rick. Uh, I mean, we've heard a few times, so at least in those early days, it seems like writers were not not encouraged to be on the set. Um but Well, then, I wasn't uh, even trying to interfere. For sure, for sure. But it's although uh, I did have Patrick Stewart ask me if if he was supposed to be the same person in the alternate universe as he was before the time alteration. And I explained to him that he was the same person up until a point 22 years in the past when when the when the time alteration occurs. And from that point forward, he had been living in a warlike universe where the federation was at war versus living in the peaceful federation so Mm -hmm. he really understood that and then and then uh on the same day 
Jonathan Frakes asked me the same exact question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I explained it to him, and he's like, I don't get this fucking story. <laughs> <laughs> and he still claims that all these years later. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're the one directing those stories now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's it's worth pointing out. It's like this, uh, you know, this episode, we we see it as being so so cinematic so unique so so special but it was done on a, a very tight production schedule and one of just 26 episodes they were they were doing that year so it's like uh, you know the actors the, the crew they're all just working hard doing their doing their stuff and so it's like nobody as you said previously but like the writers all thought this was going to be a disaster and, and most of the mm. most of the cast probably just thought like yeah it's just another week you know on, on the job yeah well, except for Denise Crosby, I'm sure that she was course, uh, yes. <laughs> had had a feeling that it was at least something special, you know, for her character to reappear. Well, and and I, and I think that uh, the fact that the the production team, the, the set designers, and everybody, the, the way they recreated the bridge and and lit it differently and created this whole different ambiance, which was far beyond my expectations, because. Mm -hmm always told you know we don't have a budget for that <laughs> uh, that really made a huge difference at setting the tone for the for the alternate storyline yeah yeah this, Although uh... I really, when i saw the, the the scene that we were just watching where the ship comes through the through the vortex and 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 tasha starts to uh, say there's a, it's a ship uh NCC 1701 and like nobody reacts yeah. like we all know what 1701 <laughs> see and everyone goes ah. <laughs> <laughs> trust me I really want to have a conversation with the director about that one. Yeah. let it go this episode was uh, directed by David Carson who um, would later go on to direct uh, Star Trek Generations but uh, at this point, I mean, he was uh, primarily known for doing a lot of TV work. He, he had uh, he's British in origin, and so he'd done a lot of work over in over in the UK previously. Uh, and we're over there; they'll often spend you know three weeks on a episode of television. Whereas here in America, this was uh, I imagine this was a six day shoot. But uh, Eric, if you have uh, different numbers there, um, I think I think we had seven days. Seven days. Okay. Um, but yeah, very, very different environment. Um, but he was always a, you know, let's get it done kind of director, um, mm -hmm. however we can do it. Um, so uh, I think, you know, a lot of what we're seeing here is uh, doing a lot with what they had. Like what we're seeing here is the Bridge of the Enterprise C, which is, of course, a redress mm -hmm. of the Battle Bridge set. Um, and uh, a lot of what we're seeing in this. And I mean, even though it's a very expansive episode, you know, it's using stuff that they have really. I mean, this is, we're not going to an alien planet. We're not doing yep. a lot of, a lot of like new prosthetics. Um, so it's, uh, it's interesting to, to think about it from a production standpoint. Yeah. It must've been relatively inexpensive. Yeah, probably except for the, the changes to the bridge. Cause they literally changed the floor. So it was like steps and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so some construction and stuff involved, but overall, compared to most episodes with alien planets and sets and stuff like that, it probably wasn't that expensive. Yeah, especially what they were able to do with just changing the lighting. Yeah, that obviously didn't cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. 
Are you happy with the, how the finished episode came out? Fantastic. Yeah, I love it. In fact, um, the first time I got to see the, the complete episode wasn't until they had completely finished editing the episode together. Mm-hmm. And um, I got Susan Sackett um, called me one day and said, Gene Roddenberry wants to see you in his office. Wow. And of course, every time someone was told that their heart sinks and they think, what did I do now? (laughs) (laughs) So um, I went over there and it was a surprise party and they had the whole writing staff and Gene Roddenberry together in his office. And and Trent was there and they had a a cake for us. Congratulations. And we got to to watch the episode for the first time with Gene. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty amazing for a Star Trek fan from Eugene, Oregon. No kidding. The scene that we're watching right now, where uh, there's a map in the background behind Guinan and Picard in the in the uh, I think it was the lounge behind the bridge. Uh, two of those stars on the map, which you can't really see, have my name and Trent's names on them. <laughs> oh, really? Stillwell and Canino. I think That's we great. were conquered by the Klingons. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little homage from uh, Mike Akuda. Oh, yeah. That's wonderful. It's a great, it's a great, uh, I, uh, you know, it wouldn't be super appropriate to have this in every episode of Star Trek, but it's, it's a great look and a great uh, feel for. Uh, the the ready room here. Oh, well, absolutely. It's in the new dark. Star Trek, in the new Star Trek, so you get that in every episode. <laughs> <laughs> and it wouldn't be appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> the new Enterprise, uh, what is it now? F J. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> you barely see without a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> you have all those sun flares coming in from the window, so it, it makes. <laughs> That's from the. the- I'm sorry. I was just wondering if you watch the current shows. Oh yeah, I've seen them all. I can't really. I I'm not a huge fan of Lower Decks, but I thought the crossover episode they did with Strange New Worlds was fantastic. Yeah, I think it's actually one of the best episodes ever. <laughs> I mean, and uh, Jonathan Reese directed that one, and I I really cool. love that. Uh, Captain Rachel Garrett here and. I love this scene. It's wonderful. Um, the just the tension is just so palatable in this moment. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, Rachel Garrett, me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that uh, Rachel Garrett is played by Trisha O'Neill, um, yeah. who is quite a character actor in the in the '90s. You'll see her pop up in all sorts of uh, you know crime shows or you know one off uh, performances. But I, I think she's just so so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in this episode, but I, you know, she says a very specific way about, I mean, this was just the joy of character actors in the nineties was just, they, they all had very specific attributes about them that made them so, so recognizable. Um, and she just has this certain way about her that was, uh, was just a joy to watch. And, and it's, you know, I don't think they've done much with the Rachel Garrett character in Star Trek sense. I know yeah. there's like a passing reference to her in the most recent season of Picard, but it's, uh, you know, it would have been, um, I still find it's just fruitful ground for future Star Trek exploration. Mm-hmm. Well, she told me when she auditioned for this part, she she tried to uh, 
incorporate Kirk into her persona. That's great. Her. And when she got the job, she said she was so excited she was jumping off her her coffee table. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, yeah, I guess she, uh, it's worth pointing out for listeners out there, but you also wrote a book about the making of this episode, correct? It's, uh, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. So it's uh, you would have done, you know, uh, it, not just your own lived experience, but even more research into the into the episode itself to uh, to get that book out there. Yeah, the making of yesterday's Enterprise. What inspired the book? Well, I used to to do a lot of conventions, and for a time, I actually worked for Creation Entertainment and traveled all over the country doing conventions. And people would always have the same questions over and over sure. and over. And, and I don't mind answering the questions. But I thought maybe if I just put it all down in writing, uh, it'll be there for posterity. Because it seems over time, I sometimes uh, forget the order of things or you know, you start to remember things differently than what really happened. Um, so I thought, I'm going to just put it all in, in a book and then it'll be there forever to answer everybody's questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's not a big, it's not a lengthy book. Most of it is the actual final draft of the script with a bunch of chapters explaining the whole production process and how the story was developed and Mm-hmm. all the different phases because one of the things i always like to to emphasize is that there were many other writers involved a lot of yeah. times it's embarrassing to go to conventions and stuff and people introduce me as the person who wrote yesterday's enterprise yes well i co-wrote the story and uh, <laughs> a bunch of really great staff writers wrote the teleplay <laughs> and michael Piller contributed a lot and he didn't even get a credit so I mean, but Michael Piller, I worked with him for many years afterwards as his um, executive assistant after we left Paramount. And uh, so we always had this sort of little thing going about who who wrote the most popular episode of Star Trek. And <laughs> I say the best of both worlds. And I would say, well, that was a two-part episode. I had the, the, the most popular single episode. <laughs> <laughs> He was always uh, very good, good-hearted about it. Mm-hmm. I just, I think it's, it's, it says a lot about his character that he's the one that took a, uh, took a. What am I looking for here? He didn't take a credit on it. Um, I there's many showrunners in Hollywood who would have probably found a way to like nix your credit or something in order to get their yeah. own credit because they just want that extra, you know, ten grand or whatever it is from the from the from the from the wga or something like that and it's so it's very cool that he you know was like yeah i'll just i'll do my work but uh everybody else gets the credit for the episode mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of times michael pillar doesn't get as much credit as he deserved because um, things were so chaotic the first season next during the third season when he came on that um he wasn't really that popular with all the staff right mm-hmm. just and and he was always very serious and and uh, you know very dedicated to doing the work and not so much in to social activities and stuff. Mm. So it was it was difficult sometimes for people to get a read on a read on him, but mm-hmm. he was a nice guy. Now the the scene that we just watched, 
was kind of the moral dilemma that came from you and your your idea about uh, sending the ship back would be a death sentence. Um, so did, I mean, that really feels like sort of the moral weight of the episode. So it's great that it survived. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the dilemma of the story in, in a lot of ways. It's funny, I remember when I worked with Michael, a lot of the times with stories he would ask, well, what is it about? Yeah. You know, like like in a philosophical sense, you know, what what does it mean? Did he ask you about this? Well, I'm trying to remember. Well, he always asked that question. Yes, he did. <laughs> in every pitch. Um, but I think in this particular um, development, it was more about bringing Denise Crosby back on the show and how can we do it? And he thought this was an interesting way because obviously her character was dead mm -hmm. and had to get around that. Um, and, and one of the things I really wanted to impart was the way she got killed off in the series was just so sort of meaningless. Yeah. And, and I thought, this will be a way for her character to re to redeem be redeemed and have a, a, an out that was worthy of of the character mm -hmm. and that was definitely part of part of it too i think the funny thing is like these story these scenes between guinan and picard P P picard is sort of like the michael pillar <laughs> asking all the questions like who's to say this version is better than that version, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, and Guinan's more of that sort of the heart of the fan soul. Like, <laughs> it, it, it can't be this way, you know? <laughs> it wasn't meant to be this way. And then finally, Picard gives in. Yeah, I do love, though, the note that, like, it's not a, uh, it's not like Guinan has complete recall. You know, right. it's so vague. And like, you can understand even Picard in, in the ordinary timeline just being like, well, I just that that's crazy. <laughs> like, yeah. why would I believe this? This is just a feeling. And it says something so wonderful about their relationship, though, that that like Picard is willing to to in any timeline is willing to uh, to trust her. And that, that's kind of the first time that this has really been been strongly solidified that they have a, a special bond um, beyond uh, just, you know, a captain and the bartender at, and 10 forward. Yeah. This was also the first and only episode that she ever worked more than two days on. Oh, really? Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. Well, more than one day. This She spent two days on yesterday's Enterprise, but on other episodes, she never worked more than one day. Yeah, so, I guess we see her on a couple different sets in this episode. Yeah, she's got quite an extensive. I I love this scene that we're about that to watch with the uh, Castillo and and Yar and <laughs> I don't know. If, have you guys seen the outtakes for this? No. If you if you can find it on the internet, it's hysterically funny because you know he's telling her uh, she doesn't want him calling him Castillo and she could call him Richard or whatever. Mm -hmm. In one of the outtakes. <laughs> He says, I think I'd rather if you called me Dick. <laughs> and Denise just burst out and laughing and it's just her. Yeah. 
So anyway, if you can find it on the internet, it's pretty funny. Yeah. Castile is uh, played by Christopher McDonald, who uh, had a pretty you know strong career as kind of a, a, a villain in um, mm-hmm. in movies. You know, Happy Gilmore comes to mind. Um, Thelma and Louise. Uh, Thelma and Louise, yeah, and uh, but uh, pops up here as as a, a quite a strong hero character. Um, quite a, I, I would say a fan favorite. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, it's. Uh, it's just wonderful to see him here. He's just he's just brings such a such a strong A game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny though to see these costumes that they're in because they're, you know, clearly yeah. reused from the from the movies, but they don't include the under uh yeah. undershirt. Yeah. So it's just this this a little odd, you know, kind of just like yeah, just put this on. It's fine. Or when you <laughs> see that the belt uh, thing on the back that the belt's supposed to go through, but it's right, just there. Weird, but, you know yeah. they were all they yeah. were all called out of bed to go fight this battle so they didn't yep. really have time to put on the whole ensemble <laughs> on it's just, it's... <laughs> so that's the funny thing about answering questions for fans at conventions is there's there's always the production reason mm-hmm. that things but that's not what the fans want to know they want to know the continuity of the actual star trek universe like why is it like this yeah I mean, yeah. this episode has probably the the biggest one, at least in my awareness, is how at for the longest time at the very end of the episode when we're yeah. back in our normal time and you see Jordy is still wearing his like armor uh, or a uh, uh, phaser big battle phaser holster that would have been present in in this timeline, and uh, you know it 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 was always just like why is that there <laughs> and and I think for the Blu-ray and now this more recent um, HD release they actually. Uh, scrub that out so it's not well, even they, in the they, shot anymore um, well i know the fans don't appreciate it when the answer is oh the costume yeah, is that's because, yeah it's... they made a mistake and they're like <laughs> and but so i just tell them it's it's a hint that the timeline isn't really back there you <laughs> go there you go because we know later on ron Moore brings denise back as her own daughter yes so the universe didn't exactly go back exactly the way it was yes i just, I just love that though I, I still want like a follow-up novel or something that follows <laughs> follows tasha you know, i i tried to uh, get this episode novelized and really? Anne, you remember ann crispin ac crispin oh yeah she, sure mm-hmm. sure sure mm-hmm. she was really interested in doing it and she pitched it to her agent and they tried to pitch it to pocket and it would have obviously expanded on some of the backstory that we don't see in the episode but for some reason it never never took off wild to me i mean this is one of the most popular episodes of the franchise Mm -hmm. even now i'd say it's worth worth putting out there in a novelization format i'm sure some fan has written that novel many times (laughs) but you know, you have to, it's not real until it's uh, put out by pocketbooks. It's, of course. <laughs> I have to tell you one of the greatest compliments I ever got indirectly was from Rick Berman, where he said in an interview, if if he had known that they were going to make movies after the series ended, he would have saved this episode and done a two-hour Oh, it's a movie? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of people have brought that up over the years of how, like, this is kind of what generations should have been. Is this well, episode. and they could have done it with the original yeah. interface, they, they could have, yeah. And yeah. It's, uh, 
And arguably, they still should have. I mean, you know, we look at Nemesis or or Insurrection, and and they're kind of reusing, you know, old story beats anyway. So it's like, I think though at the time there was just such kind of a, a hatred of canon. At, you know, there's like this feeling of like unless unless a complete newbie can come into the movie theater and have a good time, then we're not we're not doing it. And yeah. so it's a. Uh, I think well, we missed out on a lot of great Star Trek movies because of that. I know Michael's approach um, back in like the third season and for a few years was not so much that they hated the canon, but that they wanted Next Generation to stand on its own feet. And yeah. they didn't want to feel like they were propping it up with quote unquote gimmicks. Sure. From- <laughs> Of course, because I pitched stories about Sarek, and then they weren't going to do any shows with characters from the original series. But then they did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then they brought back Scotty, and which was all great. Those are great episodes, and they should have. They shouldn't have hesitated doing that. But I think in a way, they, it is it is a smart move in a, in a lot of ways. Like we look at this episode here, and it's it's expanding on canon that we never knew about before, right? Like yeah. the Enterprise C and the you know, uh, you know, the, this big important moment in its life, we had, we really had no conception of. And well, one, please go ahead. One note of, um, was the the captain in the transcript was Richard Garrett, and it's mm. named it's named after a pizza place in yeah. from his childhood. And I kept saying, "Why don't we make it a woman?" And then it'll be like the first woman captain of the Enterprise. <laughs> There you go. So I was very, very proud of that, that we introduced the first female captain of the Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this scene right here should have won Patrick Stewart and Emmy. Like, he's just so good in that. And, yeah. you know, as, as he's explaining just how, like, horribly the war is going for the Federation and they're expected to lose here soon. And it's just, it's just like, you feel it, you know, like yeah. any, any movie or any like TV show today, like you'd have to see a big battle go badly or something, but it's like, none of that would be as powerful. as just Patrick Stewart just explaining it to you in a, in a paragraph. And, and cause it, it really carries that emotional weight. Yeah. And she's very good too. Oh yeah. No, she's, she's great. And it's uh again, like, well, it's just a shame that we haven't seen more, more, her and the Enterprise C since then. When I sci-fi, nobody's ever really dead. That's true. That's true. Leonard Nimoy said that, right? Yes. Um, when I pitched the the notion that um, Tasha would basically go back in time with the Enterprise C to replace Garrett because to keep the universe in balance, Michael was so skeptical about that. He, he also um, he he thought we were stretching you know, believability in a lot of ways. Because one of the things I wanted at the end when the Klingons say surrender and prepare to be boarded, I wanted it to be Michael Dorn. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And Michael's like, no. Nobody (laughs) will believe that. (laughs) I just wish he was still around so I could say, Easter egg. (laughs) I mean, I I think uh, that at the very least, it makes it up through the final draft of the of the script doesn't it where it's uh at least a reference of like maybe it's michael dorn maybe it's not i don't know but um so it's yeah. uh michael wasn't buying it he wasn't buying it that's too bad but, but the scene in the the captain's ready room where tasha basically says the same exact thing to him is my idea and, and picard goes 
it doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> I'm like, that's Michael Miller. <laughs> I do love uh, so many of the directing choices here. It's, uh, you know, they raise a lot of elements of the of the bridge, but then they that to allow to to film it at a lower angle, um, which is am amplifies the kind of tension and feeling of mm -hmm. you know militaristic aspect of it all. Um, and uh, once again, we have rocks on the bridge. Rocks on the, so yeah. many rocks. Like they need to stop building these ships out of rocks. It's terrible. <laughs> and especially not putting sparks right behind every single yeah. council. No, yeah, no, it's. But, you know, it's funny um, because Terry Mattelis is getting so much accolades for, you know, giving the fans exactly what they wanted all mm -hmm. these years. Mm -hmm. And and Trent and I tried to do that with yesterday's, yesterday's Enterprise. Even. And so one of the scenes that never made it, they didn't, they didn't even shoot it, was we, we wanted, at the end, when, during the battle when Riker gets killed and we had a whole bunch of things we thought would be funny, like Data getting electrocuted, <laughs> and then uh, Wesley getting killed off because the fans hated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're like, "No, we can't do all that." <laughs> like Easter egg. <laughs> <laughs> also, I, th funny. I think that's just one of those. Uh, also, just you know. Uh, comment on the um uh past pace of production too because i as i oh, recall yeah. even all those deaths that you just described were in the finished version of the script so it was like uh you know everybody was kind of on board with it but i think ultimately it was just like we just we don't have time to shoot all that that's so much yeah. so much work <laughs> but um it's funny because somebody, you know, I, I guess it was Guinan said to Picard, you know, there, there's supposed to be children on this ship. And he says, children, are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Cut, and then he cut to Wesley, you know, at, at the helm. And I, I kind of wondered if they might have changed that, if they might have not had, you know, a child be one of their senior officers. On the other hand, though, I could easily see in times of war, their definition well, yeah. of children gets a little, a little well, fluid. That, that was definitely the argument that, that because the war was going so badly and they were losing, they were recruiting younger yeah. crew. So it made sense. But, th but Susan Sackett hated that because uh, Susan and her writing partner wrote an episode where Wesley got his field promotion mm. and finally gets to wear a regular uniform. But we did it in our episode first. <laughs> Yeah, no, we we talked to Fred Bronson about that episode, and uh, it's a nice yeah. moment. But then, it, yeah, as you, to your point, it's like it had been done, you know, uh, what ten episodes previously, and everybody was like, "Wow, he looks really good in this new uniform." <laughs> Why do we have to go back to the gray one? That's really yeah, Susan was very annoyed by that. <laughs> like, we were supposed to have it in our script. <laughs> yeah, Susan and I are friends, by the way, and. Fred. Susan's going to be at the convention I'm doing in Amsterdam next year. So, oh, yeah. Nice. To see her. And it'll be the 34th anniversary of yesterday's Enterprise. Wow. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, are you still in touch with a lot of the Star Trek people, I assume? Not a lot of people, but I mean, 
I I know you know I, I'm still friends with like Dave Rossi and and Mike and Denise and mm-hmm. and Heidi and so there's quite a few people that that we that I worked with that we were still Facebook friends and stuff like that. Yeah. It's not, I wouldn't say we we communicate that often, but when we were in Los Angeles last summer, uh, we my wife and I had dinner with Dave Rossi and his wife. Mm-hmm. It's always fun to get together. Yeah, because you know I met Dave Rossi at a Star Trek convention in Las Vegas when he was still a construction worker. Oh yeah, in Lancaster, and he he found out the next day that um, his crew had been laid off, and. Oh. So he had contacted me about trying to find a job at the studio. So I I actually helped him get a job as a tour guide also. Oh, really? Which is how he ended up eventually being a production assistant and working for Rick Berman. Mm-hmm. So we go way back to the beginning. And wow, that tour guide program is quite the entree, isn't it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that was the funny thing when I was talking about wanting to give two weeks notice earlier. Mm-hmm. When I took that job as a tour guide, because the turnover is so rapid when mm-hmm. people finally get their foot in the door, um, th- they make everyone commit to six months. <laughs> yeah. They would say, promise us you will not apply for any other positions at the studio for at least six months if we hire you. And I <laughs> agreed to that. But the funny thing was I didn't apply for anything after they hired me. I had already interviewed with Bob Justman before mm-hmm. that. So when they contacted me, I it wasn't my doing, you know. Yeah. And so they were pretty generous about it. But every time I would see my old boss, Tim, giving the training tours to new groups of pages, he'd always stop when he would see me and go, oh, this is Eric Stillwell. He used to be uh, one of the pages, but don't do what he did. <laughs> I, a cautionary was, tale? I was only a page for literally like a month. Like, <laughs> I started in August and left in October. Okay to go work on next generation but it's sort of his fault for assigning me to do door duty at the screening of encounter at farpoint so yeah definitely (laughs) (laughs) but it all worked out i do love this you know because i I feel like there's a version of the episode which like doesn't even you know uh, there's plenty of showrunners out there or producers out there who would have been like we don't need this tasha element like it's it's superfluous and yet i actually think it's it's the absolute heart of the episode and part of the reason reason why we remember it so so well um you know and it's it's such a fulfilling thing i think for yeah. you know when i when I, I i've been slowly showing my my girlfriend the next generation and i actually contrary to what a lot of people would do i i started us at the first episode yeah. um because like even though the first season's rough and you know mm-hmm. there's a lot of a lot of sexism in there but it's um <laughs> but by the time but they lay so many of these like little emotional uh, uh you know the groundwork for things that just really pay off so well by the time you get to season three four and onward yeah and it's you know you if i just started her on season three this episode would mean nothing to her and it's like yeah, i mean well, at least at least the tasha stuff it's still obviously a great episode but it's like it 
it just there's such a payoff if you actually know tasha you feel that heartache of having seen her die in a very meaningless kind of way um and then being able to see her actually come back and be like wow this is this carries such a such a gut punch in a great way and i I can see the argument that that maybe we wouldn't care about this crew that we had just met as much as we care about tasha yeah yeah i mean she's what holds it all together Mm -hmm. it's very true and that's always the dilemma i have when i meet people who aren't really star trek fans i mean they're familiar with with it but they don't know all the history and everything and i i tell them about my episode and they're like oh which one was it and i tell them and they're like we'll have to watch it i'm like well you can't just watch it (laughs) knowing all the story before it because it really wouldn't have the same look archer four we were we were fortune tellers (laughs) (laughs) that wasn't my doing and you know narendra what was the planet narendra three yeah yeah. was named after yeah narine yeah that's not by me i think ron moore did it This is just, uh, I don't know, hey, as a kid growing up, like seeing stuff like this is just, you know, you just you just live for these moments right here. Yeah. The <laughs> big old space battle like this. And, you know, it's the only like sad part is just because it's such a time consuming endeavor to get all these, you know, model shots. It's like they they end up, you know, reusing a lot of model shots in the future. Yeah. And, um, and it's pretty rare we get any sort of a any sort of bat- space battle scene at all until we get to like deep space nine and then you know voyager and they become more common and and enterprise as some of some of the greatest space battles you'll see in star trek and just getting the enterprise c model in such a short time period yeah it's like practically miraculous yeah very true and yet it looks great i mean i think any other i it mean as we've, as we've seen in the original series they would just like just use the enterprise model and <laughs> that's all, you know, it's like oh yeah it's just another constitution class ship it's fine it's fine it's fine and it's like no i mean this is <laughs> this is great because it's like it's similar but it's it's distinct enough and you can kind of ex- extrapolate a, a certain architectural style that would have been prominent at the time uh, yeah. just because of it and i feel like the story just really holds up after 34 years oh totally i agree, I agree. still meaningful even today yeah as an anti-war kind of story mm-hmm. and you get to have a battle in which the enterprise is basically doing badly yeah you know, also in, true in, yeah. In yeah which they are losing and you never get to do that in you know in in the established timeline right unless or, it's cause and effect unless it's cause and effect <laughs> and then they do it over again, and, and over and over yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's I'm just, still. I'm very proud of this episode. Yeah, you should be. It's great that we are coming up on. Uh, I think we're coming up on it, right? Am I mixing this up with? Is this the first of the Jordy roles coming up here that he? I don't. Maybe I'm mixing that up. I, I never mind. It, I'm thinking of best of both worlds. I, I think he does do a role when the when the emergency door come down. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> if it's the first time he ever did it, but could be. I think I, I think I'm thinking of uh, best of both worlds actually, but it's, uh, 
the joke, at least from what we hear, is that the joke is that like he always wanted to do it because he always felt the last time was never good enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> supposed to be this badass moment for Jordy, and it just you know. But, uh, <laughs> so Eric, maybe... did you try to write another script or uh, submit more pitches? Um, I did write another script called The Matter of Time, um, but it didn't go anywhere. It was a a war episode mm -hmm. where I can't remember the details of it after all these years, but I, I it was where they uh, Worf was having some kind of traumatic remembering, remembering things like post-traumatic syndrome kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And the therapy the, the doctor decides to use is um, connecting his mind to the holodeck Huh. during when he's asleep sort, sort of like a a dream sequence where it would come to life in the holodeck mm -hmm. and they find out what was at the core of of these uh, you know what was happening to him but it was that didn't come to fruition and then um david and i my writing partner david or george uh we sold the story to voyager yeah prime factors for mm -hmm. season mm -hmm. and uh, that was an interesting uh, development process <laughs> because <laughs> uh, we originally pitched it to michael and jerry and michael got this notion in his mind that it was kind of like the treasure of sierra madre mm. so we had to go watch treasure of sierra madre to see what he was talking about. yep yep <laughs> Um, but then when we revised the story and came back to pitch it just to Jerry by herself uh, as the sort of fool's gold thing happening, she uh, argued that that's not what Michael asked us to do. And I'm like, mm. well, I'm pretty sure that's exactly <laughs> Um So anyway, but they did finally buy the story that we didn't get to write the script for that one either. And then we, we pitched several story ideas um, to Deep Space Nine, but there was always some reason why it wouldn't work. Like, we pitched a story about uh, Dax meeting a previous uh, lover mm -hmm. who was when, when she was a man. Yeah. And then having it, and the, the, Ira just sort of had himself all twisted up in knots coming up with reasons why they couldn't do that story. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then they did it anyway. <laughs> right? Yep. Um, I also remember um, going in before, before the Defiant was introduced on Deep Space Nine, we pitched a story about um, Riker's clone or whatever he was, the mm -hmm. Duke of coming on sh onto the station and stealing a prototype starship yeah we didn't know anything about the defiant or any plans to introduce that and they were like hmm, that's interesting tell us more yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay and then they sort of did that story <laughs> they didn't buy it from us yeah so we we uh, ended up one of our pitches we we uh we did a pitch with Armin Shimmerman and they didn't buy that either. So we sold that to Pocket Books and it became the 34th rule. Oh, that's great. Uh -huh. 
Interesting. It's one of the best-selling Deep Space Nine novels. Wow, that's very cool. Uh, well, we uh, finished up the episodes there, listeners, uh, and Jordy's phaser holster was not on in the final shot. So <laughs> there you go. Digitally, digitally removed. Um, I never uh, <laughs> uh, Eric, what's uh, what's been what's life been treating you to recently? Are you still uh, writing or uh, what's uh, what what's what are you up to? My wife and I are happily retired, living in France. And traveling, Sounds nice. Sounds and good. we go to occasional conventions. I have three conventions next year: one in Zagreb, Croatia; one in Luxembourg; and one in Amsterdam. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, European listeners out there, you should uh, <laughs> check those out. Or I guess if you want to take a trip over to over to Luxembourg, that's <laughs> uh, what, what kind of conventions does uh, the Luxembourgians roll out for you? <laughs> Well, most of the conventions in Europe are sort of like um, just general sci-fi slash Comic-Con type conventions. Although I I did one earlier this year that was specifically Star Wars slash Star Trek slash Stargate. (laughs) Because Bob Picardo was the guest they tagged on the Stargate part, I guess. And and that was fun but definitely in france star wars is way more popular um in other countries germany england even in spain and italy star trek is huge but for some reason it never caught on that big in france hmm. even with jean luc picard well <laughs> the, the story i always heard about the original series was <clears throat> when they dubbed it in french they used um someone from quebec to, to dub uh, it and so the french just didn't buy the accent of <laughs> voiceovers and then of course it, it's probably annoying when when they do an entire series with a french captain who has an english accent. yeah <laughs> i the fans are always asking them marina certis why does the captain picard have an english accent and and she'll say because by the 24th century england won <laughs> <laughs> so well, it yeah. feels like like having recently watched napoleon it feels like uh americans just presume all french people have british accents and that's just <laughs> yeah <laughs> how it works uh, I, I started watching some uh, mini series of les miserables and uh, it's in English, but they they throw in like French words just to make it sound like it's French. Like Monsieur, French-ish. what are you yeah. doing? <laughs> I like Franklish. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Uh, well, Eric Stillwell, thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been a wonderful chat. Um, if uh, fans want to get in touch, do you have a website or any social media handles you want to throw out there? Well, my social media is mostly um, my travel page on Facebook called Boldly Going, <laughs> and but and we also have a Instagram page called Stillwell's Boldly Going, but I also have um, a Facebook page for Yesterday's Enterprise, which is where I do most of my Star Trek posts. That's wonderful. And is the making of yesterday's enterprise still in print or is it uh yeah, it's like, it's it's an on demand 
book, which you can get through Amazon or anywhere that you can order books online and they, they print them on demand. That's great. That's wonderful. Well, if uh, fans want to learn even more, uh, go check out that book. Um, all right. Well, hey, thank you very much again for being on our show. It's been a pleasure. Hope we can have you back on someday. Um, and if uh, fans want to get in touch with us, you can find us at uh, Trexperts, uh BR on uh, Twitter and Trexperts Briefing Room on Instagram. I uh, want to thank uh, everybody at the Inglorious Trexperts podcast feed, Mark A. Altman, Darren Doctorman. Um, and, uh, until next time, hope you guys have a great new year and, uh, the briefing room is now closed. Mr. Scott, what do you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened, as if the ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement.